Hello and welcome to this podcast, Invisible Visible. This is a project where we are interested in talking to people who felt invisible or without a voice in our society, but through circumstances have become visible and found their voice. One such person is Grace Spicer. Grace is a former business and media student. Grace enjoys working on projects impacting social change and participating in voluntary work. And Grace is now a keen advocate for mental health services. Before I became a mental health advocate, I found I had my mental health issues of my own and that's usually where these advocates come from, from our own backstories, our own experiences. And when I was in the realms of secondary school, which is a good seven or something years ago now when I started, I remember I, I wasn't diagnosed, I'm, I'm uh, dyspraxic. And I found it very hard to fit in because I didn't realise what was up with me. I found my emotions were different to other people. I had troubles with friends. I had trust issues. I never really maintained in the same friendship group. I was always being kind of left out. And for, for some people, you might go, oh, well, that's not really a big thing. You're only a little kid. But when you're a child in school, it, it matters quite a lot because it matters not only on your social development, but it matters on in a sense, your your survival in secondary school. It's really important to growing up. So when I was in those positions of being left out and being, you know, not allowed to be a part of things, I was felt very isolated. I felt very alone. I didn't feel like I was in place. So I always try to be an advocate for mental health because I think it's important that we talk about these things and also that it how it impacts people with learning disabilities who may have trouble accepting or finding themselves. It is difficult to do that. Dyspraxia is part of the autism spectrum. It mostly impacts your fine and gross motor skills. Um, so sometimes I'd find it difficult to catch a ball, for example. That was one of the difficult things. I'd find coordination quite difficult as mine is quite slowed. Writing is sometimes a little more difficult as well as things such as maths and working things out. If I'm not given basic and clear instructions, sometimes it can be a little difficult for me. Throughout school, I eventually kind of just went into being more independent, learning a bit more about the spectrum, becoming a bit more aware of who I was, trying to maintain better relationships with the aim of being connected with other people and them understanding me and uh, accepting me for who I am. Um, in the later stages when it was difficult for my mental health uh, with trust issues and just overall just sad kind of feelings and thoughts and stuff, I went into counselling with Yes Mental Health um, and that was on a six week programme between when I was 16 to when I was 17 and I'd sit there every week. It was just 50 minutes a week, just sat in a room like we're now, just sat at a distance talking to each other about how my day was, what happened and it was very effective. I don't think people understand the effectiveness of talking to someone until you've done it. I would I would very rarely talk about how I felt. I never felt like it was my place to do so. I felt very distant and I didn't want to talk to people about how I felt, but you wouldn't really really realize how much of a burden and a weight off your shoulders it can be to go in and talk to someone about how you're feeling. It really puts you your mind into a perspective of my feelings do matter. And that was something I didn't consider before, that, oh, just a, just a kid, my feelings don't matter that much, I'm sure. If they're just, it's fine. But when you go into the counselling system when you need it and when you talk to someone, like you said, it is such a relief on your shoulders. 
and it is so important just to understand that you do everyone matters everyone's story everyone's backgrounds everyone matters no matter where you are who you are where you've come from it matters and it's worthy of talking about even if it's just how has your day been you don't know you don't realize how that can help someone who might have been having a difficult day and the importance of young people saying that as well such as myself it matters because I'm telling this from peer to peer if someone say older than me was telling me oh go on to counselling you'll be fine I might be a bit mm, well you're saying that and uh, maybe you know it might be for older people but if I would like to say to young people who may be listening it is so important if you need someone you just need even just a little bit of help or a little bit of support on in the first instant it's best to just go talk to someone tell them how you're feeling because you don't realize how impactful that will be i remember my first day in counseling it was yeah it was at the college so i study um a sixth form elsewhere so if first things first i saw people who i hadn't seen for two plus years who recognised me and they and obviously I was like oh gosh I wonder if they'll they know what I'm here for but I do remember going in and sitting in the waiting room and being like being nervous being anxious but when I left after my first session you don't feel the weight immediately lift off your chest but you do feel slightly relieved you're like okay so this is a step in the right direction I might not feel it now but I can kind of sense in the back of my head this is a step in the right direction and it's wonderful to to know that somebody's like the counsellor has got your back. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They're like a friend to you almost, a friend who can offer good advice and guidance, which maybe I'd missed in the past. So now you're you speak very openly, very articulately, very confidently about mental health. You've been interviewed by the BBC. Yeah. Um, that you felt invisible, but you've become very visible now. Yeah. How how does that feel that you've become so visible that you've found your voice that you've discovered who you are yeah it feels amazing more than anything it feels just like I'm more open I feel more honest with myself and I can be myself and be with people who are understanding of myself and since being I was on the counselling service just over a year ago so I was 16 17 I'm 18 now and from going from being on the counselling service someone who had a very you know very closed off personality to now volunteering for that service making events and engaging tools for young people advocating about it it's a massive step in the right direction and it's so important because i know that it's so difficult it's even especially right now young people right now it's so difficult to strive in a world that is today so it is so important to just sit down and just go how are you let's talk about mental health and make that a more normal conversation and I'm very pleased with the amount of progress I've come through in the past year as would my peers would have noticed and my parents have noticed as well and I'm incredibly grateful for all the support that both my parents, my family and my close friends have done for me in terms of being more visible and open to talking about these things. And you mention obviously at the moment life is so difficult for everyone but young people have suffered so much yeah. during this pandemic with not being able to go to school to um, to college um, everything that's happened at university and mm -hmm. so on what advice would you give to anybody about um if they're thinking about having counseling 
Um, the importance is, I think more than anything, is to address it sooner rather than later. I held back from addressing things for a good four years. And I think the, the sooner you get it talked about and the sooner, the more confident you feel. And that's where the importance of counselling and mental health help comes in. And sometimes counselling doesn't work for everyone, bear in mind. Some people might just be better off talking to someone online rather than in person. I felt that I found that the face-to-face -face interaction was better for me, but for other people, maybe just looking at a screen and not knowing who the other person is might be better for them. Maybe just some simple well-being activities and ideas. It depends for every single person. It really does. I, I wouldn't say to you, go try this, go try that, go try this, go try that. I would just say, try a bit of everything, see what works best for you. And if you want to go into counselling, don't be ashamed by it because it is so important. And it's, to any men that are listening, it is so important to go out there and to take care of yourself, to look after yourself, because it's not a female thing, it's an everyone thing. And that's the importance of it all. So take care of yourself, look after yourself. It's nothing to be ashamed of, it's, it's human. Whether you're boy, girl, or non-binary, it's so important to look after yourself, especially right now. Just take every day as it comes, be fortunate, and make the most of the services and things that are available to you. Important key services and how we regard them have been very much in the news recently. Mental health services have indeed been in the spotlight, and so has the NHS. One service that has caught the attention of many in Milton Keynes is Food Connect. This service started out as the Community Fridge Initiative, which initially was a drive to reduce food waste. It's now become much more. Helen Innes, the project coordinator from Food Connect, from the bathhouse in Wolverton, tells us more. Food Connect has been in the making for around about a year. Um, we identified at the community fridges that um, there was a, an issue with volunteer turnover, the cost, um, our own carbon footprint um, for collecting the food, and we wanted to find a, a viable solution to addressing the, the problem of the final mile. Um, so we have, um, at the moment, four community fridges open and sharing. The first was in 2017, and it was based at the bathhouse. Um, and over time, communities across Milton Keynes um, like the idea, they come along to a conference at the bathhouse, and, and the first one ins has inspired now six, so we're soon to have six within the Food Connect project. I would say that um, Community Fridge's primary focus is environmental. It's about reducing food waste. Food waste is, is the second biggest contributor to climate change, and we're very much an environmental project. This is a really important distinction between being a food bank. Um, although we provide food, um, its primary focus is to stop it going in the bin, and that's a very important distinction. Um, that distinction means that um, the stigma of accepting food is taken away. There are no criteria for receiving food from a community fridge or sharing food from a community fridge. It's a two-way thing. It's not just about receiving. It's about um, sharing a common 
a common thing through food and that in itself takes away the stigma because you're not only receiving but you can also give. The demand for the food has definitely increased, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but one thing to say is what, what lockdown did was it shut all of our venues so that we were unable to share food. Um, and that's really where our idea of Food Connect, so Food Connect is a food redistribution service um, that we hope will generate green jobs locally, um, increase the yield of food that we share, but also support each of the community fridges so that they don't have a high turnover of volunteers. The volunteers' well-being is considered because they're doing jobs that they tasks that they really enjoy um, and that it helps those venues um, to further benefit their communities. That was the vision for Food Connect originally. But when lockdown happened, those ven all of those venues closed um, and until we were able to reopen and share food safely, they remained closed. But behind the scenes, Food Connect carried on. So we got uh, an electric van and two electric cargo bikes and we adapted really quickly um, to be able to share the food, the surplus food that we collected, put it into parcels, identify people that we knew needed it and needed doorstep deliveries. So people that were shielding, people that were caring or in care, um, people that were self-isolating, um, I mean, the, the elderly. Um, there wasn't any qualification for it. It was a reference from the council, from Care MK, from the NHS, or just from a neighbour. And if we could get food to them, we, um, we did. So from the old bathhouse, we helped 155 households once a week. And then through Great Linford Parish Council and a partnership with um, Fair Share South Midlands, um, we also helped residents in Great Linford Parish um, and we continued to deliver them until in, almost the end of August. I mean, we stopped delivering in July from the bathhouse um, because we wanted to, we wanted everyone to be able to come and get the food again once lockdown had been lifted and people didn't need to shield any longer. Um, so yeah, so so that was that there was an initial uh, vision for Food Connect. Um, Lockdown changed that vision, we had to adapt very quickly and we op offered a doorstep delivery service and then once lockdown was lifted we had to, we've adapted again, we've relaunched the service as a professional food redistribution service um, and now that, that serves our communities from the food hubs that are already established, so from the community fridges that are already open and sharing on, in four locations. As it stands we now have um, four staff on the team. We've got um, three rider driver Food Connect couriers, we call them, um, and they are collecting six days a week. Um, they are all part-time roles for the pilot project because we're piloting this so that hopefully we can create a model that other, other communities and, and areas can adopt. Um, we are collecting a staggering 2.9 tonnes a week, which we collected last week and we counted 555 individual visitors to the four community fridges that are currently sharing six days a week. So we're having quite a large impact now, um, and that is that as 
as long as we are visible and people can see the service that we can provide and we have the resources to do that, we will also help other communities in Conibra, which is due to relaunch, and Daisy Chain Children's Centre, which is, is due, hopefully, to reopen soon. So we'll then have six outlets for the food um, and we're looking at you know, how efficient we can make our electric fleet um, and our and our team of, of drivers and riders collecting the food, and, but in the process we're also testing e-cargo bikes. That's quite that's quite an important thing. Um, e-cargo bikes are, are quite new to the scene, um, and obviously they offer a, a, a sustainable, pollution-free option of moving things around. And for us, in this case, it's food. Um, so you know, our carbon footprint is. Is, has been reduced, so we feel like we're kind of having a very positive impact on Milton Keynes. There's three strands to the project. There's collecting the food, there's the time of our drivers and riders, and then there's the output. And we need to kind of look at all of those simultaneously. So if any one of those changes, we've then sort of got a bit of an operations issue. We've either got food waste on our hands or we've got people in need on our hands, and, and we don't want either of those to happen. Someone who's worked throughout her life for social justice and fairness is Lisa. Lisa is the child of Windrush parents. People from the Windrush generation were brought to Britain to help build essential services after World War II. We owe them a great debt of gratitude in building the NHS, for instance. Lisa has carried on her parents' dedication and drive to help people in her own life and career but she hasn't always felt listened to or visible. So you felt invisible as a child. Can you tell us what helped you find your voice? Um, when we spoke on the phone, I was particularly taken with that story you told of your headmistress who was very forward-thinking. I'll never forget her, and I was... I had to have been no more than six, which is pretty amazing to remember a headteacher at six years old. And her name was Mrs Thompson. And she was really amazing because she knew that I was going through lots of stress at home and lots of not nice stuff. When she found out about things, she really tried to help. And she used to take... To me, it seemed like an hour, but I would imagine it was probably only 20 minutes, half an hour. But every day, she would take that time and I would have time with her in her office... And she would, and she had like influential black people on her wall, and she'd tell me, "You could be just like these people. Don't let anyone stop you." And I never forget because it was because of her that I really liked Donna Summer because she had Donna Summer on the wall, and she had um, Maya Angelou on the wall, who I love as well. Um, and uh, who about Floella Benjamin and oh, Diana Ross because she had loads of hair and I had loads of hair. So, and I never realised until I was older just what that did, like, because she used to say it to me all the time and because I came from a large family and I was the youngest, I really did feel invisible and when all the horrible stuff was going on, I really didn't feel like I could speak out and it wasn't until I got a little bit older, I think... I was about 10, I started writing poetry because of Maya Angelou and seeing her on the wall and stuff, and that's kind of how I started to find my voice. But I didn't share it with anyone. 
and I remember um, I was about 16 and my friend found my book and all my papers and I was really like quite angry with him like why have you looked through that stuff and he was like no it's really good you should share it and then that's kind of what started me on my journey to find really find my voice because uh, from an early age I had a lot of negative things that I would tell myself but then I had these snippets of really great role models that said things that I'd always tried to remember when I was finding it hard and I do think it was all down to determination and just to think about the end goal and because of them I did certain things that I probably never would have done. I, if anybody knew me when I was younger before I got to 16 they, I was the quietest person and because of what my head teacher said and all of those things I went on to love drama my school wouldn't put on a drama project after school so I wrote to all these people that I knew who did drama and I got a list of people and asked if they'd come and coach us after school and there was a man called Stephen Stenning who lived in London and he was I think he was involved he was involved in various theatres and I wrote to him and said look we really want this drama club I've got six friends, could you come and coach us? And he used to commute from London every Wednesday to come and coach us to do drama. And when he met me, he was just like really confused because he said, you wrote me this great letter, but you're the shyest person. And he was like, he helped me kind of come out of my shell. And to this day, I'm still in contact with Stephen. And again, role models, and I just think... They're so important and I didn't realise until later on in my life just how important they were and how important I saw being a role model because the career path that I then took. I went home to my mother's figure's house in Bletchley that night and then I thought, I'll just look in the citizen. So I was like looking through and the job literally just jumped out and they wanted a youth worker in Milton Keynes to work, to work through drama with young people and I was like oh my word so I just applied and thought what have I got to lose and interestingly I was 21 I didn't get the job because they thought that I didn't have enough experience uh, enough life experience with other young people um, but they asked me to volunteer and that's how I got started and I literally worked my way up until I got into senior management. Um, it wasn't easy because there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me, um, especially in management. So I never thought I'd get to management. And so when I did, um, it was really interesting. And I went into management because I really wanted to help the workforce. Once I'd worked with young people and tried to help young people, I realized the barriers that the workforce were facing. So I was like, I really want to get into um, management. And I worked with some great people um, and I worked on lots of black issues. I did my training. I, I, I met an amazing tutor. It was my first experience of a black tutor. I'd never seen a black tutor in my life. Um, at 24, I met this woman called Jackie Holder amazing opened my eyes to black history that's when i started doing all the black history stuff in milton keynes um but then 
once I got into management, realised how things change and how race can polarise a lot of things for other people. It sound, it's going to sound really odd, but I didn't really... I, obviously, I know I'm a black woman, but I didn't... I wasn't one of those people to use it. I was just like, you know what, I'm a worker, I want, I'm in management, I want to help everybody. I didn't really see that. And then I started to see people were kind of using that, and that was the first thing they saw. And that was really odd, because I'd never really experienced that even though I'd gone to school and I'd been the only black child at points I'd never felt like people had treated me differently because I was black and then as soon as I got into the world of work and got up the ranks I started to see it and feel it and kept thinking oh I and all the time trying to check myself like is it me like or I'd ask other people that I really trusted and then I decided to take a different tact because I could see if I didn't, it was really going to become an issue. So I became a person, I became more open. So when I could see that people might be thinking things or they behave in a certain way, I'd suddenly do things to say, oh, why is that then? Or, and I'd start to ask questions. Then when people realised that I wasn't this aggressive person, slowly people started asking me questions about my experience or what it was like and how they could get involved in things and that really helped and I naively thought that once I'd done that and worked my way up that people would respect you and value you for that but that kind of didn't happen. I've overcome so many challenges in my life I've got a disability, I never let it help hold me back. At 16, I got told I wouldn't walk. I didn't let it hold me back. And yet this thing that happened um, to me a few years ago completely floored me. Like I've never, I've always prided myself on being quite resilient. And even if I got knocked back, I'd dust myself off. But this, it just completely floored me. and. Because what happened wasn't through any fault of my own. I literally didn't know where to go or who to turn to. And it basically was that I was a child of Windrush and that came back to haunt me because people then believed that I didn't have the right to be in the UK or the right to work here, even though I'd lived here all my life and <laughs> worked in various roles and what have you. Um, I just, I can't even explain to you how devastating it was. And I can remember thinking, I actually don't know what to do. For the first time in my life, I literally don't know what to do. And I contacted uh, my foster mum. Luckily, I'm still in contact with her. And I told her what happened. And she was so angry. And on the phone, I'll never forget. And she said to me, she just started rambling all this stuff. and. It was obvious to me then that she had been fighting this from when I was a child, but I was unaware of it. And uh, she said, right, I'm coming with you when you have to go into work, because work just didn't want to talk to me at first. They wanted to talk to my manager. And then finally, when they did want to talk to me, they, um, well, 
my manager walked me out of the building. <laughs> uh, I never forget that. And I'm not a crier by any means, but I got out of that building and I was like just trying to hold it together. I called a colleague and he came because he could hear in my voice something was wrong. And when I got into his car, he'd known me for about 15 years. I just burst into tears and he just sat there because he was so shocked. And he said, what happened? And I told him and he said, right, come on. And he completely organised me. Let's get the form. Let's fill it out. Let's, you know, he was brilliant. And they had told me that um, once I'd filled in the form, it wasn't going to affect my right to work. And once I'd filled in the form, I could um, come back to work and they'd sort it all out. So I did the form I, and I sent it off and I sent it recorded delivery. And then when I got the notification, I phoned up. Nobody would talk to me. And I was like, hold on. You told me once I've done that to call and now no one's talking to me. And then they called me in and my foster parent came with me. And they basically dismissed me and then said that I don't have any right to appeal and I don't have any right to any money that I've already earned. Um, and I just sat there because I was just like, what am I going to do? And my foster parent, she was brilliant, uh, she said, well, how's she going to eat? How's she going to live? How's she going to pay her bills? And they just sat there. No one said anything to me. And she basically said to them, well... Um, she was a ward of court, she was your responsibility and if you've waited all this time for this to happen something needs to be done and she just grabbed me and we left and I was just sobbing, got into her car and I just sobbed and she said to me, I'll come to my house and I was like, no, I admit that I was going to go to my house and I went to my house and I just went into battle mode I phoned every MP that I could find the number for I tried to contact anybody that I could um, and I went to sleep and then I, I couldn't sleep so I got up and I was thinking what am I going to do and then I remembered a journalist that I follow and I tweeted him because I thought I don't know what else to do and I said I need, really need your help, something's happened and it, it's 40 years ago and it's come back to haunt me and bite me and I don't know what to do and he was brilliant he by the time I'd woke up about 11 o'clock the next morning because it was about three o'clock in the morning when I tweeted him he'd been on every bit of my social media to try and find out who I was everywhere and he realized I had we had some friends in common and then he messaged me and said tell me what's happened and I told him and he was outraged and he said I'm going to help you and he was brilliant he was really good he rallied round and got me advice and got me some contacts with care leavers and people like that. He was really, really good. MPs didn't really help me. That was a bit of a red herring. Um, my friend, I was godparent to her daughter. I'm godparent to her daughter. And I thought, I need to tell her because she's going to realise I'm not at work. So I told her and she said, oh, you need to speak to my dad. And her dad, because he used to be a social worker, he really helped me. And he said, let me be your advocate. And he literally got me around his house and he got me to tell him my life story. And then he wrote to my employer and said, this is outrageous, what, you, what you're doing. This person should be celebrated and you've destroyed her life. And you, this needs to be rectified. I'm not going to stand by and let you do it. He was amazing, but it was so stressful. And I was trying to deal with work 
and deal with the Home Office and I couldn't collect any benefits because the Home Office had all my ID and stuff and said that I wasn't eligible. So I had no money. I was I had a dependent who was 17, 16, just finished college and wanting to go on to another college and to uni. And I was thinking, oh, I don't even know how I'm going to support him. And if it wasn't for my friends, and it literally was my friends, and not just friends, like the kindness of strangers, like this journalist, he messaged or rung me every day, every day, even for about a year and a half. Um, and people like that were connected to my advocate, who he, he one day said to me, I'm going to talk to somebody else about this because this is quite deep and I need to get more help. And people who didn't even know me or just knew of me were like, if she needs money, I'll give money. People who, because I was technically unemployed, people so I was volunteering at the time. I was volunteering at a disabled drama group and um, they started noticing. And the lady who used to take me home, she basically said to me, what's going on? Something's not right. You're not yourself. And when I told her, she was just like, oh my God, why didn't you say anything? You know, I'd been, at that point, I'd probably been suffering for about nearly a year. And she, the next day she was going on holiday. And um, when she, I heard a thing go through my letterbox early in the morning. And when I went downstairs, she'd posted a card with some money and just said, I don't want you to give me the money back. I want you to use it to get some groceries. And when you're on your feet, she goes, I don't care how long it takes, just pay it forward. And I literally sobbed. I can't even tell you. I spent weeks in my house just sobbing from the kindness of people. My friend's dad, I love to cook, and my friend's dad sort of was having a barbecue and invited me round in the guise to help him cook. And when everyone was out in the garden, he basically said to me, look, I've heard what happened to you I, I know something's happened I don't know the details I know you need money I, all I know is that you've really been a really great friend to my daughter so I'm going to help you I'm going to pay all your bills for the month and I literally just sobbed and that's kind of what got me through because I realised you know, you know when you hear that saying if you put good out you get good back but you I don't know, sometimes you think, does, does that really happen? And all of a sudden, all this good was just coming back to me. And I just thought, I've got to pick, try and pick myself up and get through because people have been really kind and people are showing me all that stuff that years ago, my head teacher was trying to say to me, you know, be resilient and, and where you can get the help, get the help. And that's kind of what pulled me through, really. It's really, it's still tough, because I had to start my whole life again. And through it all, like, my son is just an amazing human being, because he went through college, he then went on to go into uni, and he was going to quit, because he, he got himself a little Saturday job, and it was good, and he just said, look, I'll quit to put money into the house and I didn't want him to do that because he'd found a love for something that he didn't know he had and he realised he had a massive talent for it which was dance 
and he went on to study at a top London dance school from having no dance experience. And I said to him, you can't give that up because that doesn't happen every day. And he, he's qualified now. He qualified in June, so he's got his dance degree. And I'm just so proud of him because it wasn't easy. And I know he was really upset and really worried. And at one point he thought that I would get deported. And we're really close. I'm a single parent. So it was really tough. And it's just made, I don't know, it's made us closer. We was always close, but it's made us closer. And I'm, I am really proud of him because he, at every moment, he still tries to help. He'll still buy the groceries. Like, we've been in this pandemic and he was at uni and he'd drive down and bring me groceries and, like, a 21-year-old should be, not be doing that stuff. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes I feel really awful because I think at his time in life, I should be able to be really helping him now. And I was... Before all of this happened, I was really set up to be able to do that. And then all of that went, and I've had to start my life again. This poem I wrote when I was living in America uh, because I was living in Boston at the time and it's so similar to England, as people may, may know. And uh, there was lots of gang issues and I remember thinking, uh, when I go back to England, I'm going to work with young people because we're so similar to Boston that I could see that we were going to have gang issues and this was in 1992 and this is called I wasn't a mother then I'm a mother now but this is called a mother to her children this fragile world we live in the trials that we face the children scared of living they pull knives they don't embrace as mothers of these children we fear to let them go we think we have prepared them, but then you never know. The trials that we live with, the fear that we face, these children, what can we give them to make a brighter day? It's always in a mother to love with her whole heart in hope her child will follow. Be strong, be wise, be smart. Another person who's working tirelessly to raise awareness and cultural understanding is Ruda Abdullahi. Ruda is the chair of the African Diaspora Foundation. I was born actually in Mogadishu and grew up in Holland. And I did my uh, degree in uh, Amsterdam University, Free University in Amsterdam. And when I uh, started to try to find something from my uh, degree, I realized the lack of uh, equality and immediately, because at that time I had uh, two children. Uh, my son who was actually 15 years old and my daughter 
was at that time six years old, ten years old. So I decided to completely change my direction and think, let me go somewhere where it's actually uh, equality is uh, more appreciated and there is a more diversity or multicultural place. And I end up moving to Milton Kings. <laughs> and when I came to Milton Kings six years ago, I had that mindset of uh, this is the place where there is a lot of opportunity and I'm happy to make sure that my children grow up and get uh, equal chances. And well, as I started to get involved with the community, I realized actually a completely different thing. And that was actually my reason to get involved, uh, to empower community and bring people together and to raise these inequalities and those things that are happening because I didn't want it that my children to grow up they end up having the same issues that I experienced. So that was my reason to be part of uh, uh, African Diaspora, and where I'm actually at the moment the chairperson of the African Diaspora Foundation. Well, it started uh, first in 2000, I believe 2016, in September, there was a young man that actually was uh, gunned down and he was from Somali community, my community, and another Somali young man. And that resulted in the death of that young man. And I realized that the, the safety or the security of my children will not be in a, in a good position if I don't step in and take some actions to get involved. So I thought this is something that I can share with other communities that are similar, like me, that actually maybe are facing the same problems. And after that issue, uh, 2017, I realized that Milton Keynes was celebrating the 50th anniversary. And I looked around. I thought this is an opportunity maybe to do something with other countries from Africa. I look around. All the activities that were listed from the council that were taking place, about 200 of them, I looked at if there is anything that I can maybe join or be part of it that's actually from African background. I could not find anything. And I thought, this is it. If we don't do now anything, then we may end up actually just keep building and keep starting and our children will suffer and we never get anywhere. So I realized I need to get people who can actually support me with this idea. And soon I found out that there were a couple of people that were having the same issue. And we started to set up a festival in Campo Park in 2017, where we actually enjoy uh, uh, the main reason was actually coming together and celebrate our culture and diversity and from there we'll see what happens. That's how actually African diaspora started from the beginning. That I believe uh, we can only do our best to uh, engage and make African diaspora foundation as inclusive as possible for us as well and keep it the diversity. Uh, Africa is actually not one country, Africa is 54 countries. I am actually uh, from Somalia, and 
I knew when I was starting with the African communities bringing together that me as a Somali community, we have a lot of challenges. And it's a community that is actually completely uh, from what I have experienced that time and uh, before African diaspora that actually had a negative image. And even when I speak uh, about the Somali community uh, with other Africans, uh, I could feel that there was some kind of uh, perceptions about the Somali community. So for us, it was a really a great opportunity uh, when uh, the event of the festival takes place to actually show who actually Somali community are and not what people actually hear about us. So it was really giving us the voice that we really needed that completely changed the uh, understanding of a lot of communities what they were thinking about Somali communities. I believe one of the things that we, uh, lately I was just listening about uh, the numbers of uh, the hate crime and the cause of those uh, actions that was a they were actually related with the racial uh, uh, problems. And as a Milton Keynes, being a multicultural city, I think it's all our responsibility if we would want to have a safe city to engage more as a leaders, uh, to not only to mention that we want the diversity and the inclusiveness, but really taking an actions because I see a lot of organizations that are actually, uh, we are part of it, the activities, but we're not really, really part of it. And that is something that really need to change. And for me, I can, I can only do my best and I can only see a lot of people have, I believe that a lot of people have given up and that they made their choices to actually lead their own life. And people from my background. But as far as we're concerned, uh, my children are here and a lot of young people are growing here. This is not the environment that we want them to grow up. We want an environment to create an environment. For example, I work as a tutor science in a place in Coneborough, and I work with the middle-class young people, the middle-class British young people. And my idea is normally these young people, they will not engage with each other when they are at school, but bringing them together and tutoring these other young people is helping them to engage with each other. And I hear from stories from them that actually when they see them at school, they actually talk and that's something that they will never have done it before. And that is, a, that is the step that needs to be taken. Step by step we will get somewhere to be really uh, proud of and some place where we can call home and it's safe for all of us. We live in a diverse and complex society and many people often feel that they are overlooked, forgotten and ignored. But if the last few months has taught us anything, it is that everyone is important to their local community and to society. Everyone has a part to play in supporting vital services and in building a just society. Making people feel invisible and undervalued does not solve any problems. 
In fact, it creates them. Everyone has an important voice. We must listen. This podcast was produced and narrated by Rosemary Hill. Caroline Devine was the sound designer and Mark Neal provided the music. With many thanks to MK Gallery, Darren Water and to the Arts Council for supporting this project.